When we're taking our primary training, there are certain scenarios that our instructors discuss, but we can't actually experience, like an engine fire or an engine failure on takeoff. We can learn the emergency procedures, but for most of us, these things won't ever occur. Another scenario is wake turbulence. We hope and think that it'll never happen to us, but it did happen to a pilot, very close to the ground and in front of thousands of people. We'll meet her on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hi, and welcome to episode 27 of Flying Magazine's I Laughed podcast, brought to you by the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. I'm Rob Ryder, and my guest today is airshow pilot and Reno racer Vicki Benzing. She earned a PhD in chemistry at UC Berkeley, but flying has always been in her DNA. Vicki encountered wake turbulence for the first time in her over 9,000 flight hours from a Lockheed Martin C-130 Hercules while performing at an air show in California. We'll hear her story and what she learned about flying from that right after this word from Avemco. For more than 60 years, Avemco has been the only aircraft insurance company that lets you speak directly with a decision maker empowered to approve coverage based on your unique situation. Call 800-338-8705 for a free quote and you'll save an instant 5% for being an iLaft listener. Save even more for recurrent training, a new rating, or participating in a Fast Teams Wings course. Call 800-338-8705 or visit avemco.com slash flying. Now, I learned about flying from that. Vicki Benzing is a tremendously talented airshow performer, having found her way to the rare air at Oshkosh and also known at Reno at the National Championship Air Races for her wins there. But today, we're going to talk about a very, very critical I Laughed moment in just a little bit. But Vicki, thanks for being on I Laughed. It's a pleasure to be here, Rob. Thanks for inviting me. This is cool. Your start with aviation had a big hole in the middle of it when you did some other things, but and then you got back to uh, aviation and aerobatics. But how is it that you got the aviation bug in the first place? Oh, my uncle was an air show pilot and ultimate air race pilot. So I was rounded as a kid and I was lucky enough to go flying with him when I was too young to know whether those houses were real or if they were toy houses that we were flying over. Oh, my goodness. So as a as a very young kid. So it's almost in your D. Well, it's almost in your DNA, isn't it? It's in my DNA. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Did you get your private pilot's license on your 17th birthday and did you solo on your 16th? I did not. Um, My father wasn't a flyer and um, I didn't really have access to the airplane and or airplanes. And I didn't get my pilot's license until I learned to skydive. And I was out, I fell in love with skydiving. I was out skydiving and I was around the airplanes and I came back home and said, mom and dad, I got to learn to fly. And um, I was lucky enough that one of my dad's friends let me learn to fly in his 1941 Taylor craft. Wow. uh, In Watsonville, California on the coastline there. 
So you are the quintessential uh, California girl who chose skydiving over surfing and then <laughs> flying and jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. That's right. <laughs> if there the is such a thing. adrenaline bug hit early. <laughs> wow. So are, do you consider yourself an adrenaline junkie? Uh, not really. I mean, everything I do is uh, is practice, well practiced. I'm actually quite conservative. <laughs> <laughs> Being conservative is good, but you still got into aerobatics, and that is not necessarily conservative. True. Um, my The guy who uh, gave me my primary flight training, he was a former military instructor, and so he taught me how to loop and roll the, the little Taylor craft. And uh, after that, I went and did a course with Amelia Reed at Reed Hillview Airport. And, and then, of course, I was still a student, so I couldn't really afford to fly aerobatics until much later in my career. <laughs> and your time as a student led to getting a PhD in chemistry? Yep, yep. And I worked in uh, high-tech Silicon Valley for, I don't know, 25, 30 years. <laughs> and through all that time, you set flying aside until such time as you had the money to go for it again? Oh, no, no, I, I flew. I always flew, but I didn't fly aerobatics. Um, so I would, I flew during that time uh, pretty much on the weekends because as I moved up in the corporation, my job just took more and more of my time. But, um, but I always flew. It was always in my blood and in my DNA and just part of the fabric of my life. Did it cause you to want to walk away from that job in Silicon Valley to pursue aviation full-time? <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> wow. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, um, you know, at some point I realized that if I didn't go pursue my dreams in flying, I would get to be too old to do so. It's uh, To fly aerobatics is pretty physically demanding. And, um, and so I was a vice president in, in a $2 billion company. And I stepped down from that job and I went to halftime and worked on intellectual property while I came up the ranks in competition aerobatics and started flying air shows. And then ultimately the company went through a merger acquisition. And, and that was just a good time for me to retire entirely and, and go fly air shows. So that's what, what I do. Wow. From a tailor craft, did you, during those days when you were flying, when you were still working in Silicon Valley, what airplanes did you fly then? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I got, I got my helicopter rating. I got a commercial helicopter rating, and then I bought a little helicopter. And um, I bought a, oh, gosh, a Beach Debonair and flew that. And later we bought a Duke and then a King Air. Um, and I had my trusty Luscombe that I had since since 1984. Uh, <laughs> so I got I probably flew I don't know 1500 hours in that, and and then somewhere around the the late 90s I bought the Stearman 1998 I think, and um, I don't know I'm always better at buying airplanes than selling them I think. Um, so yeah. Okay, that then, begs the question: How many airplanes do you have, Vicky Benzing? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I want to tell you that on on air. <laughs> but more than a couple. <laughs> more than a couple. And, okay. And, yeah. <laughs> I, I did have a guest on a previous episode who told me that he couldn't sell airplanes either, and he was partner or full owner of about seven of them. Uh, yeah, I think I have them beat. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but, but of course, my husband learned to fly a few years ago, so he accounts for a couple of them. So maybe we're, we're equal. <laughs> well, okay. That, that'll be good. Because now we we're can... a two-pilot family and, you know, that changes everything. That changes the averages. That right. That's, That's right. That's right. Well, Jeff, Jeff flies the Cirrus most of the time, doesn't he? Yes, yes. Okay. And uh, he also has a carbon cub, and as do I, because, of course, nobody wants to ride him back. So gotcha. sort of like having two motorcycles. My first exposure and time that I met you was out in California at an air show in Salinas, and you were sitting in the right seat alongside one of the most famous aviators in the country, Clay Lacey, as he flew a Learjet. I didn't know who Vicki Benzing was, but if Clay Lacey puts you in the right seat, that must be pretty good. Oh, that, that was so fun. That was so much fun. I was so lucky to get to fly with Clay in those air shows. It, uh, of course, it was a little bit terrifying sitting there in the right seat um, with all the bells and whistles going off, inverted at a thousand feet, pointing at the ground at 500 miles an hour. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But Clay, for those who don't know, Clay Lacey, uh, if you have uh, if you've ever seen a, an air to air commercial of an airliner, no matter what airliner it was, it was Clay Lacey Aviation that shot that. But he also has another credit that you probably will be familiar with. Yeah, that's right. He uh, he filmed Top Gun. He was uh, he was the guy that did all the air to air work in Top Gun. The original one. <laughs> Pretty crazy. Going back to 19, what, 85 or something. Well, oh, yeah. But he's, he's very famous. <laughs> yes, he is. But you have become very, very well established in the air show business and, and also at Reno. As a matter of fact, it was, I believe, in September of 2021, just a few months ago before we recorded this, that you won first place in the sports silver class at Reno in your Lancer Legacy. Congratulations. That's pretty, that's exciting for you, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. We, we work hard on the airplane and um, yeah, sometimes, yeah, sometimes it all works out. <laughs> let's, let's move on now to the Stearman because I have announced for you a number of times as you've flown your Super Stearman and it is a wonderful display. You handle it with such poise, such grace and such precision and you just do it so well. But your flying at an air show in the Stearman led to a very, very scary moment for you. Would you like to set that up for us? Sure. Um, well, I was flying at the Wings Over Wine Country Air Show in Santa Rosa, California, and um, we had run a little bit behind schedule because there was airline service in and out of the airport. And so the air boss was anxious to get us up in the air and get the, the show moving again. And and I was the first act up after a, um, a series of passes by a C-130, a, a big heavy airplane. And uh, he taxied me out onto the runway. And then he taxied um, the Red, Red Stars, the formation yak team behind me. And so they were in position behind me on the runway. And we were there waiting while the C-130 Hercules did its passes. And it did probably three or four passes. But the last pass it did it came in dirty with all the wheels extended and the the rear door the door that they load stuff in open and um the flaps down and so it was going really slow and generating a lot of lift and it was just over the infield um to the left of the runway where we were positioned and after it passed we we waited and then the air boss cleared me to take off and he 
third minute takeoff a full 29 seconds after the pass of the C-130 Hercules. And as soon as I rotated and, and broke ground, the airplane, <laughs> not under my control at all, <laughs> rolled to the left and the nose swung around 90 degrees and pitched toward the ground. Uh, I think the pictures later showed that the wingtip was maybe a foot and a half off the ground. Um, oh boy. I was banked up uh, beyond the 45 degree angle. Like I said, the nose was five, was 90 degrees off heading. It was pointed directly at the Airbus and the crowd. Oh, oh my. <laughs> and I, I never gave up. I, um, I gave the input controls to unroll the airplane and straighten the airplane out. Uh, and it eventually flew through the wake and I was able to recover the airplane and, and climb back up to do my performance. But uh, it was, it was quite a shock to hit that wake turbulence. Uh, I did not anticipate it at all. It was something I hadn't thought about. I really hadn't thought about wake turbulence since I learned about it as a private pilot. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, it was exciting. I literally thought I was going to crash the airplane. Fortunately, the Stearman's pretty well built and I think it would have been a survivable crash, but, uh, but it would have balled up the airplane. That's for sure. I have experienced wake turbulence in one occasion in my life, and it was behind a twin beach of our friend Matt Yunkin. And we were flying to, to Tinker Air Force Base, and with plenty of space between us, he turned in front of me to uh, go ahead of me because he could go faster than I could. And when I hit that wake turbulence, it shook the airplane crazy. That was a six thousand pound airplane versus an 1800 pound airplane and it got my attention but we were at about 6500 feet so my recovery was a piece of cake when that hit you what went through your mind did you say oh my god this is wake turbulence from a 200,000 pound airplane versus my 3000 pound steerman or did you just say was it total reaction just to get the stick to the right, the rudder to the right, and pull back on the stick to get the nose pointed away from the ground? It, it was total reaction. Um, yeah. Um, sometimes you can't think about stuff. You just have to react. And um, in that case, I was so close to the ground that it you have to have the right reactions. And I'm lucky. It, I'm an aerobatic pilot. I've I've gone, you know, done plenty of upset training. <laughs> I know what to do if the airplane goes upside down. And and of course, being uh, flying in Reno, um, we do we do get wake turbulence flying in formation when we you know change the formation around or 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 if we're on the race course and flying behind people, you get rolled up. But but I had never experienced wake turbulence on the ground on takeoff before. Um, and that was pretty scary. And at Reno, you're dealing with airplanes the same size as yours, basically, so that the wake turbulence from an airplane your size is not going to be nearly as critical or as challenging or as, as intense as that from a dirty C-130 generating those horrible wingtip vortices. That's true. Uh, yeah, that's, that's certainly true. Not, not to minimize how much wake turbulence there is on the race course, though, especially in the jets and and um, and behind the Thunder Mustangs, they they throw off quite a lot of wake. But but generally, we know where it's at, so we can uh, we can fly to avoid it. 
But in this case, do you know what was happening with the wind? Do, were, you, were you in a crosswind situation or was the wind straight down the runway? And, and did you think that that 29 <laughs> seconds was going to be plenty for those wingtip vortices to spread out and down and away from you? Or did maybe the upwind wing, a vortex from the upwind wing, come back across the runway to hit you? Well, I, I'm... You know, I'm not really sure what the wind conditions were, but they mu it must have been fairly calm based on what happened. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think that the vortice just laid there on the ground for that 29 seconds. And, and you know, I fly out of Monterey, and quite often there are large aircraft that depart before me, and the tower will tell me to hold for two minutes for wake turbulence. And... In two minutes is a long time if you're sitting at the end of the runway. Um, it had just never, I guess I just had, had never occurred to me or encountered it before. It never occurred to me that I would hit wake turbulence after 29 seconds. Because usually the wind blows and blows that kind of stuff off the runway anyways. Got it. And so you went then and finished and did your entire routine. Were you shaken by that or did you, did it did it come back to hit you emotionally later on what almost happened <laughs> yeah well it's it's a little stunning um but you know the show must go on and um, oh, gosh. <laughs> i don't know I, I think if you're a professional you just shake it off and you go do your thing and then you can worry about what happened later um and in fact the tower did come down one of the guys from the tower came down and talked to me afterwards he's like was that way turbulence and, yeah he said we've never seen that before <laughs> I, I think uh, think of none of nobody who observed it had ever seen anything like that before. Is that right? And there's video yeah. of it uh, that maybe I can get into the show notes uh, if we can get permission to look at that video. We can actually get it's kind of distant, but we can see what happened to the airplane. Uh, it was pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, fortunately, the the Red Stars. One of the guys had a camera on his wing and filmed the the entire thing. And I also had a camera in my cockpit. Uh, but anyways, there, yes, there's several pictures and video because it was, of course, an air show and there are lots of cameras around. You said, Vicki, that you believe you would have survived the crash because you were so close to the ground at that point and the steerman is well built. Uh, in a, and being a wooden airplane, you and I have previously discussed having a wooden airplane uh, to absorb that kinetic energy uh, is uh, is would have been a plus in that situation. But um, with a wing that close to the ground, uh, it could have swung you around and grabbed, the ground could have grabbed that wing and spun you around so you wouldn't have known where you were. That's true. You know, car, or, or potentially cartwheeled the airplane. Um, that's probably the most likely thing that would have happened. Uh, but I, this, like I said, the Sturmo was a trainer for World War II. It was very strongly built. Um, I, well, of course, everybody believes that their airplane would protect them in a crash, <laughs> but I think mine would. <laughs> and and when you take off, what what is your ro what speed do you rotate? Oh, that's a good question. Um, when the airplane wants to fly, <laughs> so it's probably uh, I don't know. It's probably somewhere around sixty. 60 knots? Um, well, I, I read miles an hour. <laughs> yes. So I didn't have a lot of excess airspeed. That's for sure. Yeah. 
That's what I was getting at. Not a lot of excess airspeed. Well, tell you what, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll go over some of the lessons that you learned about flying from that. We'll be right back. Personal service. Two words that are important to a consumer. And they're just as important to Avemco Insurance. The Avemco Aviation Insurance Specialists understand pilots. They'll answer your questions. They're empowered to solve problems, and they can even approve coverage based on your individual situation, not what some rule book says. Call Avemco at 800-338-8705, 800-338-8705, and learn about coverage personalized for what you fly and how you fly it. Now back to ILAF. We're back with Vicki Benzing. 1,300 parachute jumps, first place in the sports silver class at Reno in September of 2021, in her own Lancer Legacy Lucky Girl, a PhD in chemistry from UC Berkeley, uh, an accomplished uh, corporate pilot, aerobatic pilot, multi-airplane owner, and an steerman. She got into the wake turbulence of, of a C-130 Hercules and about balled the airplane up. Boy, oh boy, there must have been some lessons learned, Vicki. Yeah, I think there were. <laughs> for instance? For instance, when the tower at Monterey tells me to wait two minutes for wake turbulence, yes, sir. <laughs> I might have waved that before, but not anymore. Is that something that uh, the FAA does routinely at, at airports? Uh, because I, I get a wake turbulence, uh, caution wake turbulence on takeoff, but I've never been given a two-minute time thing when I've gone to takeoff. Yeah, I, I think so. I, they do it routinely here. Um, I think at the, at the airports where uh, larger corporate jets and, and heavies fly out of, they routinely give a wake turbulence time frame. Even even if it's a smaller biz jet with uh, or uh, as compared to a seven thirty seven or something like that. Uh, yeah, I'm not the expert on the on uh, their procedures, but certainly at Monterey they ask you to to wait for wait three months for the smaller corporate jets. Gotcha. They they weigh a lot too. Yeah. Well, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, you know, 6,000 to 1,800 pound still still gets your attention big time. So the, the, uh, the weight factor is in, uh, in huge, it's a huge ratio in difference. Uh, what other lessons other than paying attention to uh, and being uh, not upset with having to wait for, uh, for two minutes for wake turbulence? What other lessons did you learn? Well, the big one is to continue continue to fly the airplane all the way into the crash. Uh, don't give up, but to keep flying. And, and in this case, you know, I gave it the rudder and aileron inputs. And the only thing I could do is wait. And I, I was at the mercy of, of the wind, literally, the wake turbulence. But eventually I flew out of it. And, um, and I was in a position to roll back level and, and fly off and into the distance. So I would say don't give up. If it, things look bad, just keep flying the airplane. And I guess the other big thing for me is, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a lot of aerobatic experience, but um, I think it's always good for pilots to go get some upset training because you never know when stuff like this happens. It's uh, 
a huge surprise. So um, to have those tools in your little tool bag is a pretty good thing. Experience is something that we have talked about on this podcast uh, at the end of every one. Sometimes the flying lessons only experience can teach. And, and that was one for you because we all get told about wake turbulence, but few of us experience it. That's right. I think, uh, gosh, by the time that happened, I'd probably been flying for 30 some odd years. And um, <laughs> you can you can learn something from a book, but boy, when it when it happens to you, uh, that's a that's a real life lesson that you'll never forget. And thank you for sharing that life lesson with us. Vicki Benzing, thank you for being on I Laughed. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for inviting me. There are some things you as a pilot can do to mitigate the chances of encountering wake turbulence. The first, as Vicki said, is to wait. Some say two minutes, some say three. If you're on takeoff, rotate at a point before the larger aircraft ahead of you lifts off. Remember, those wingtip vortices don't occur until the wing develops lift. Climb as quickly as possible, and if the controller will allow, turn into any crosswind. That'll put you on the upwind side, farther away from the descending vortex. When landing, watch where the larger airplane touches down and land beyond that point. There are other things to consider, so if you're a student, and aren't we all, discuss it with your instructor. There are also a number of good YouTube videos on the subject to help you avoid that invisible threat. As we begin a new year, I'll start by thanking you for listening, subscribing, and telling your friends about iLaft. I'm pleased to say that Avemco will continue to sponsor the program throughout 2022, so we'll keep on presenting these important true stories. I've received emails from pilots who are grateful for the lessons being presented on the podcast. And if you have an iLaft experience, whether it's been presented in Flying Magazine or not, shoot me an email at rob at flying.media. We'll take a look at your story. The executive producer of iLaft is Lisa DeFries. Julie Boatman is the editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine. iLaft is available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can follow Flying Magazine on Facebook or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes so everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927. I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.